Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for uh, for joining me on this this Monday afternoon. Looks like the weather is starting to uh, turn for the better. So uh, that's always a positive thing, especially going through this pandemic. So as mentioned, as Daniel mentioned, um, today's presentation will be about an hour long. I'm going to go through a lot of material regarding cyber liability and exposures and the importance of cyber insurance, a standalone cyber insurance policy. So as mentioned, if there are any questions, you know, please feel free to put them into the chat. I'll try to get to them at the end. If not, please, uh, I provide my contact information at the end. Please reach out to me directly so I can answer all, all questions appropriately. So let's get started. So as mentioned, Greg Cook, Vice President at USI Affinity. We are the Embar endorsed broker for the BBA. Um, I myself, in our division here, I handle professional liability, cyber liability, and employment practices liability for law firms and law firms specifically. That's what I know dearly. So today's presentation is specifically on cyber insurance. There's a lot to, to cyber, excuse me, it's on cyber insurance and cyber in general. There's a lot to cyber, especially over the past few years. So there's a lot of material as mentioned. These are the topics of discussion that I'll be going through. First one is why specifically law firms, right? The statistics around that, where are some of the gaps that we see security wise? How can you improve computer security, right? So that's a very important one. I dive right into that from the, from the beginning. When I did these presentations early on, I used to leave that to the end, but that seems to be very important to most, obviously. So I like to dive into that from the get-go, kind of help alleviate some of the concern from cyber breaches. Then we'll talk about insurance coverage gaps that we typically see in the marketplace. What does cyber insurance actually cover, right? You hear a lot about it. You're on this presentation to learn about it. So what does it cover? We're not going to spend a lot of time, but I do have a slide on what is not covered by cyber insurance, which is important to know, but it's pretty straightforward. We'll dive into some claim statistics so you can actually see what's happening on the marketplace and why there is a need for cyber and where the, the claims are coming from. Also the demand and drivers for cyber insurance. Again, that's going to be a small component. I'll touch base on what the cyber insurance market is today as there's a lot of disruption. And then ultimately, you know, what does the coverage look like and the process as well, and also pricing. All right, so let's get started. Before anything else, I didn't put this on the previous slide, obviously for timing purposes, but I wanted to touch base on this briefly. So obviously we're going through an unprecedented time in our nation and actually in the world due to COVID-19. So I wanted to put this in specifically around email scams that unfortunately have popped up over the past you know, two months of being in this pandemic, right? What happens is a lot of these hackers take advantage of scare tactics and such, and a pandemic is unlike any other. So these are some things that we've seen from cyber criminals. Uh, excuse me, we've seen some, we've seen an increase of scams from cyber criminals in just the past two months. So I wanted to put the a, a few topics here of things to look out for, these four bullets, things to look out for to prevent some of these scams that may be um, popping up in your email. So, you know, number one, and this is always the case, but be suspicious of emails, especially claiming to be from the CDC uh, or anyone, you know, uh, trying to be an expert with information on the virus. Avoid emails that are investment opportunities, social scams, you know, promote products claiming that they can cure, detect, treat or prevent the disease are obviously fake at this point because we do not have a cure up to this this time. Uh, another note is if you're going to donate, do the proper research into the organization and payment method, right? Don't be pressured into it based on an email. I mean, these are all pretty straightforward, but again, just wanted to make a point of it. Ignore offers for vaccinations as again, there is none that have come out yet. So any ads that are saying that there is are most likely scams. So make sure you do your research with regards to this. All right. Any more information? There's obviously many websites out there. The best one is through the CDC. So again, wanted to point, point this out because we've been seeing scams specifically around 
the pandemic and COVID-19 to take opportunity for hackers to get into systems and do ransomware or whatever tactic they want to use. So let's dive into this, as mentioned. So why law firms specifically, right? So all of you as a, as a lawyer and as a law firm, you have rich collection of confidential information, unlike any other business out there. Your, your, the next best comparison would probably be your accountant, right? They have a lot of information, but you're right there with them. Social security numbers, you could have bank account information, you have, if you're mergers and acquisitions, you have um, that type of information with regards to different types of businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Proprietary information, if you're in the IP world, intellectual property world, you know, all of that is rich collection, or excuse me, rich information of confidential information, right? And this is what makes a hacker interested in your type of business. The next one, unfortunately, and this is not any one particularly to you, but this is as a whole, as an industry, lack of technology sophistication, right? So as a lawyer and as an attorney going through law, um, law school, you know, you're not, you're, you're not taught te the technology side of things, right? You're taught to be a lawyer. And when you come out, you either are working for a larger law firm maybe a small one, or even maybe started your own. Um, but one of the, the um, components here that is lacking is typically the, the technology side, right? And this opens up to a lot of security vulnerabilities. Again, this is something that hackers look for. So now, once upon a time, the healthcare industry was really where the hackers went for, but then they realized that law firms have this rich collection of information, but then they're also not sophisticated technology-wise. So a lot of them are uh, vulnerable to and easy to get access to their systems as a law firm. Okay. The next one is the lack of knowledge. And this goes with any, every industry, but lack of knowledge about how to mitigate and remediate cybersecurity attacks, breaches, right? Um, you know, this is not new anymore, but it's still on the, on the new side of things. So what I mean by that is, hacks and cyber breaches have really picked up over the past five years and in all honesty really the past two years they've really started heating up which i'll, I'll dive into later um you know so that's still on the newer side of things and we're not going backwards in technology we're going more forward right so we're using more technology than ever look at us now you know everybody's working from home mandated because of of covid19 that's technology that's now opening up more vulnerabilities to different types of businesses and yours is not protected like any other. So, you know, that's the type of situations that we're in, unfortunately, at this point. You can see here 20, and there's a lot of statistics out here, out there, um, but it's, it's estimated that 22% of law firms experience a cyber attack or data breach in 2017. Okay, now I know you're saying that's probably outdated at this point, and it is. Um, and I've read numerous articles and all the numbers are basically around the same. I see about a quarter of cyber attacks are still within the law firm space. Um, it's just hard sometimes to generate exact specifics or ex uh, exact data around cyber attacks um, because not all of them are um, reported. So that's one of the big challenges. And this is what I'm going to talk on even later. Again, but 60% of cyber attacks target small businesses, right? I have written down number, it's a numbers game for hackers. In comparison, this would be an example of, you know, your Microsoft when, when Microsoft computers came out, um, you know, when you had, it was Microsoft versus Apple and Apple was the more protected one or Microsoft products were the ones that had more viruses. That was because there was a lot more computers that used the Microsoft products versus Apple. So a hacker is going to go after a larger pool of individuals to go after to get because uh, the numbers show that there's a higher chance that obviously the more people that they can attack, the higher the percentage that they're able to get to. So it's just a numbers game. This is the same exact situation here. There's a lot of small businesses out there. 
about 75%, 70 to 75% of law firms are made up of small law firms, meaning one to five attorney size law firms. That's across the country. Um, that data, that statistic has not changed for the longest period of time. So again, you're falling within that category. And then the last component here, specifically around insurance, your professional liability insurance does not cover all of your cyber exposure. We'll get to that later, but basically that's one of the big items that I like to discuss. A lot of law firms are surprised slash disappointed um, with regards to that. But again, that's something to keep in mind. And that's why we always, at USI, we always inform our clients, if you're concerned about cyber breaches, it's always best to look at a standalone cyber policy. So let's continue. So some of the security gaps that I typically see are as follows, right? Lost or stolen devices. This is kind of the forgotten child because everybody thinks that a breach is specifically going into your system, stealing information, right? But that's not really the case. You can leave your laptop at the airport or on the train, same with your phone. And if it's not password protected or encrypted, then now you have a, um, a breach, right? And you could, and depending on how much information is on that computer, on your clients, what they're looking for is your personal identifiable information from clients. And then now that starts a trickle effect. You need to start notifying them, et cetera, et cetera. Again, we'll get into more granular detail later, um, specifically in the state of Massachusetts with regards to what that looks like. But nonetheless, that is still a, um, an item that people seem to forget. Wireless access, right? It seems to be available in most places, hotels, Starbucks, you know, other coffee shops. Problem there is they're not typically, they're not secured. So anyone around you that is accessing the same wireless now has, if they're sophisticated enough, they have the ability to try to get into your system because you're on the same network, okay? Staff training, again, this is a, this is a, a threat or a gap that we see security wise, you know, you can have your rogue employee who tries to steal personal identifiable information to hold it ransom against you or the law firm specifically for whatever reason that may be. And that's kind of similar, excuse me, that was more, that's more specific insider threats. Staff training would be training your staff appropriately to avoid email scams, like I mentioned earlier, or to avoid clicking on certain links and responding to certain um, phishing scams and such like that. Okay, that's that's another security gap. Cloud computing, very, becoming very, very common nowadays. Uh, lack of encryption and then lack of patching. So I wanna, I wanna take a, a second here and just kind of go through a couple definitions just to kind of set the tone for the rest of the, the presentation. So first, I keep saying data breach or cyber breach. So what I mean by that is, that, that in essence is basically an unauthorized acquisition or use of sensitive personal information that creates a substantial risk of identity theft or fraud, all right? So that's specifically to any one of your clients. As I mentioned, the main name for that is personal identifiable information that they're looking for with regards to a data breach, all right? Another one I mentioned was ransomware. I may, I may say that again later on. I actually definitely will say that later on. What ransomware is, it's a malicious software designed to block access to a computer system until a sum of money is paid. So the example typically that people see is your screen, you're on your computer one day, it goes black, and literally it's typed, you know, pay me $1,000 or pay me $5,000 or I will delete or um, release all of your clients information, right? It, obviously Bitcoin was, was a hot topic over the past couple of years. You know, we've seen ones like that, pay me one Bitcoin or three Bitcoins, or I'll release all of your clients information, right? That's a ransomware attack. I mentioned here, lack of encryption. That's basically just translating data into another form or code. Um, and you need a passcode to decrypt that information. So the, the most common example would be if you have a USB, that you use for storage, you can encrypt that data. And what happens is if I steal that USB from you, I would need your passcode to be able to unlock any data or files within that passcode. 
Otherwise, it just looks like a bunch of binary code or numbers. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not translated to English for me. Okay. And then the last one, lack of patching. Um, this is if you're familiar with the DLA Piper scenario that happened, that was a couple years ago now at this point, but that was a big uh, breach that occurred. That was literally due to lack of patching, um, a simple patch. Basically what lack of patching is, it just, it's a temporary fix for, soft, for a software package, that's it. So what it does is, you know, it, address, it addresses software stability issues or upgrades the software in some capacity, um, cleans up some of the security vulnerabilities that, that happened in the past. You know, one of the big things, that's why Microsoft went from, you know, they, they translated their um, office products to online now, because now what they're saying is we can patch that information accordingly, right? If there's any security vulnerabilities, they're able to provide that patch. So you can set these up automatically. All right, so just, again, just wanted to go through a couple definitions to set the tone for the rest of the presentation. So let's, let's dive into uh, one of the most important components here that I'm sure you're interested in is steps to improve sec computer security. Now, there are a laundry list of items that you can do to do this. I've included five that I think are the most important. And, um, you know, these five or the first four come actually from a carrier, one of the insurance carriers that I use to provide coverage for cyber insurance. And what they've told me is basically, if you have these first four items for your firm, they feel more comfortable providing you coverage and actually, quite frankly, providing you a better price with regards to it, because they feel like if you have these four items, you are securely uh, protecting your firm. Now, that's not to say that you are set and you'll never have a breach, but if you're doing these four things, you're a lot better than the next person, the next law firm um, sitting next to you. So number one, enable two-factor two authentication, okay? And I have written down, you can do this free with your current email system. We're all familiar with this through our banks, right? Banks started instituting this a few years ago. You sign your passcode in, your username and passcode to your bank account. And then what happens is the next step, right? It says, do you want the passcode, the number passcode sent to you in email, text message, or call you, right? That's dual factor authentication or two factor authentication. So again, what we're advising is to do this for documents, uh, basically pr proprietary or personal documents on clients' information. You don't need to do this just to log into your system, but to protect clients' information, especially if you're using, uh, if you're sending important information via email. And I'm gonna go through these in the next few slides a little bit more in depth, um, but again, just want you to know. Number two, update your DNS settings, okay? All this is basically is it's a fancy way of saying it's, it's blocking malicious websites, right? So if you were ever on a computer, maybe at the library, or if you worked at a company and you tried to, to log onto a site and it was blocked, it got blocked. That was either by choice from the, the, the company itself, or it was because they had their DNS settings to block malicious websites. And again, I'll go into a little bit more depth in a couple slides. Number three, and this is with staff training, remove administrative administrative privileges from computers. Okay. So what happens is again, hackers are, they're smart. So they're going after, uh, let's say an individual within the firm that they're fish, they're spear phishing against. And what they're trying to do is they're going after that person because they want them to allow them access to administrative information or privileges, right? So if you remove that from other staff members, then anytime that a software is trying to be downloaded, or uploaded, it needs to be approved by you or if you have somebody specifically um, handling that, that uh, component. Number four, and this is the easiest one, configure automatic software updates, right? As I just mentioned, you know, lack of patching is a security uh, vulnerability. To prevent that is to set up your computer to do automatic software updates, right? So you don't have to go in, check your software updates every day, it's just automatically doing it for you. Because again, the different softwares within computers have different vulnerabilities and different updates. So they have literally set that it'll just do it for you. One that I actually forgot to put on here, and this doesn't um, improve security, uh, computer security, 
But what it does is, uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. So basically what it is, it's backing up your data daily, okay? Now that's not gonna prevent a hacker, but what that does prevent is losing important information or client information, right? Let's say that would only allow one day's worth to be lost versus a week or a month's worth of information if your information or client's information was ever breached in some capacity, right? If it was either deleted or stolen, mainly deleted, you would at least have a backup. So didn't put that on there because it's not a security, but it's a good practice to do. And then number five I have here, obviously as an insurance guy, I put buy insurance, right? Um, you know, you can do all these different tactics to prevent, but it just takes one slight mistake or click or whatever it may be. It's really just a mistake in general by you or any staff member um, to have a breach. And I'll go through it later, but they do end up being pretty costly and they're pretty frustrating to go through, as you can imagine. So let's burn through these a few. I don't think I need to go through this again, but dual factor authentication, I think we all get the concept with regards to what that looks like. DNS settings, this is really what that, that uh, a lot of individuals are not familiar with what that means. It just stands for a domain name service. It's kind of like encryption. It's translating hum human readable internet host names, right? For example, www.usi.com, or you, know, you could use Boston Bar Association's website, and it turns it into an IP address. Right, that we're all familiar with, which is there. So what happens is by updating your domain's name service, you can use a secure DNS provider that will block traffic from known malicious websites. There is such a thing. Um, and you can see bad actors often disguise links to malicious websites to download malware to computers. Right, So that's one of the tricks that they try to do to gain access to your computer system. All right, so you know, having you download malware. So doing this is preventing that tactic from happening or trying to prevent that from happening. Uh, I already went through this. Um, so again, we can kind of skip through that because like I said, there's a lot more information with regards to this. So insurance coverage gaps. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I know there's a lot on this slide, but the point of this here is you hear a lot of different things you know, does my professional liability policy cover cyber? You know, you, you might have been told that your insurance carrier now provides a supplement or a rider on your professional liability that's providing you cyber coverage. Well, I hate to tell you, but what I would suggest is either you yourself or have your insurance broker go through exactly what that language reads, what that means, because if you actually go through it, it's usually watered down language and it's very limited amounts of coverage. Because you have to remember your professional liability policy is covering you for legal services, okay? So if you're working and you have a staff member who takes their lunch break and they go on their personal email while on your computer and they click on a link or they download malware by accident, not realizing, right? Would that be deemed as providing legal services and would your professional liability cyber rider now pick that coverage up? Absolutely not. There's no way. What I think has happened over the years, paying attention to this a lot, is professional liability policies were hit with paying some of those cyber claims because they never had language around it. So now what they did is to make themselves look better, they added a rider that says, hey, we're providing you cyber, cyber coverage. But what ends up happening, like I said, when there is a breach reported, it's either declined because it doesn't fall within the language itself, um, or when it is covered, it's capped at a certain amount. Usually I've seen about ten dollars to $50,000 of coverage for cyber breaches, which I can tell you right now uh, would be eliminated, you know, that, that would be gobbled up very, very quickly. Um, so that's one example. The other example we sometimes hear is, oh, it would be part of my crime policy. Well, there was years ago where, again, there was no language specific around cyber and a large carrier got hit with a cyber breach, declined it or denied the, the claim, um, you know, was taken to court for it. They ended up, they lost, they had to pay, pay it out. And then what happened next? 
all the crime policies and carriers out there, they added exclusions with regards to, you know, cyber breaches and what they're saying is, you know, a lot of times, especially with social engineering, a lot of times they're saying you willingly gave up the information, right? Even though you technically didn't, it wasn't stolen. So there's a lot of different language with regards to that. So again, I would dive into your crime policy, have your, your insurance broker go through that with you. Um, because I have not seen instances where they are providing full coverage. A lot of times they're providing, especially on the professional liability, a lot of times they're providing third party coverages, which is leads me to the next slide. So the infamous question, what does cyber insurance coverage actually cover? Right, I get a lot of calls around this from current clients and just uh, law firms in general that have heard of, of my name now at this point um, in providing coverage. And I got a call um, and you know it was a, an attorney, she was a solo practitioner and she says, you know, Greg, I know I need coverage, but I don't know what the heck it is. <laughs> so, you know, after we laughed a little bit, um, this is, you know, if anything of this PowerPoint slide or this presentation, this is the most important slide here. So the easiest way to break this up is cyber coverage covers two different parties, first party expenses, third party expenses. And you can see they're, they're bucketed out to the left and to the right. First party expenses is exactly that you're paying out of pocket from day one when a breach occurs. Okay, so for example, um, your breach notification costs, right? That's notifying clients. If like I mentioned before, if your laptop was stolen um, or you lost it at, a, you know, at the airport and it wasn't protected or encrypted, the information, then right there, now you have a, a breach. Now you need to start this process. You need to notify your clients. You need to investigate the situation, et cetera, et cetera. That's where all these, these expenses come from. The third party is the secondary portion of this. That's, that would be really where the penalties and fines come from, from maybe like the attorney general's office or your actual claims that are filed against your clients for breaching their information. So that's all third party. So as I mentioned, third party coverages can be argued to be covered in, into, in a professional liability policy. But again, there has to be legal services being provided or being rendered. A lot of times that's not the case with cyber breaches that we've seen. I, I would say over 90% of the time, first party expenses is not covered on any of these other um, riders that I've seen on different insurance policies. And that's where a bulk of the expenses come from and the bulk of the frustration comes from. So let's run through these. Forensics investigation. What that means is that's literally hiring a forensics investigating investigation consulting firm to go into your system, find out where the breach occurred, how bad was the breach, how much client's information was stolen or deleted. Um, and I can tell you those investigation companies, they don't charge any less than you as an attorney. They probably actually charge more because they're a very niche industry. Um, so that's one of the biggest expenses that you'll see or that you'll occur while having a cyber breach crisis management, right? Your public relations portion of it, um, you know, protecting your image as a law firm against a breach that occurs, right? That's very important. I mentioned notification costs. That's the, that's the first one. You start notifying your clients. We've all seen it from every breach that's been out there, right? Whether you're part of targets, Home Depots, Facebooks, Ubers. I mean, you can name every company out there. There's been a breach that they either tried hiding or they, they took the approach of notifying their clients. So you might've gotten a letter in the mail, you might've got an email. So you're held to the same standard. Um, you have to notify clients of their information potentially being breached. Providing credit monitoring services, right? That's another big one. Uh, business interruption, right? We don't think about this, but what happens if there is a breach within your firm and you're not able to practice, right? There's actually coverage built into a cyber policy that will, will reimburse you for um, that, that business interruption, all right? 
Um, data repair replacement, pretty self-explanatory. There's coverage built in for that. Uh, cyber extortion, I mentioned this earlier. You know, that's the, a form of that would be your ransomware. That's the most common one. That is literally somebody, you know, trying to get, um, get money from you because they have something of yours that you need. And then social engineering, this is the big ticket item here. And I'm gonna give you a, a nice video after this, this, um, this slide here, specifically of what that looks like. But social engineering in a fancy way is basically saying somebody pretending to be somebody, uh, some, excuse me, somebody else outside of your firm trying to be somebody within your firm. So, you know, and that's to a client or to try to gain information of some sort. And like I said, to break up hearing my voice, I have a, a slide after this that I, I'll show a quick little video, a three minute video um, that will really sum up what that looks like. And then I'm not gonna go through all this, the third party, but the, the two biggest ones are really the penalties and fines that come out. That's not, we don't really see too many of those because a lot of times firms are deemed to show that they're trying to protect their client's information. So, the, you know, there's not a lot of penalties and fines that come down, um, but there are claims, right? There's class action claims or there's just claims in general by individual clients. Obviously those end up being pretty costly, okay? So what I mentioned is I wanna give a specific example because this is one of the biggest increase of claims that we've seen in just the past year, year and a half. And that is literally, it's a social engineering type of, of claim specifically to wire transfers. So any attorney on this call or on this webinar who is a real estate attorney or an estate attorney handling funds and handling wires, this will be extremely, extremely important for you. And like I mentioned, it's a nice little um, cartoon video and it really sums up and makes it very clear of what that looks like. So let me pull up the video here and let's go. On paper, these may seem like simple schemes to detect. Yet, over 22 times each day or 8,000 times a year, somebody is the victim of a fraudulent wire transfer scheme. It happens every day. Bob W. is representing his client for the purchase of some large equipment and holding in escrow a large sum in his trust account. Everything proceeds smoothly. Contracts, including wire instructions for payments are exchanged and agreed. Betty Crenshaw, the attorney representing the sellers, sends back the fully executed contract. All the hard work is done, but wait, a few minutes later, she sends the second email with a quick update to wire instructions. Bob forwards the email to his assistant. He asks him to have the bank wire the funds to the account Betty provided. On Monday morning, Bob has two voicemail messages when he arrives at the office. The first is from his client. The other party is calling and wants to know why they haven't been paid. The second is Betty Crenshaw. She says they haven't received the wire transfer. Bob asks his assistant to check with the bank. The bank says that the wire went through and the money has been deducted from the account. Bob calls Betty. Betty asks for documentation of the wire transfer. Bob emails it to her. Betty calls and asks, what is this account that you transferred the money to? This isn't the account specified in the contract. You sent me an email changing the account information. What are you trying to pull here, Bob replies. What email are you talking about, Betty asks. The one you sent at 4.32 p.m. from Betty at BettyCrenshawLaw.net. My email address is Betty at BettyCrenshawLaw.com. And law is spelled with an L, not a one. Bob was the victim of a spear phishing scheme. The bad actor sent an email using an email address made to look like Betty's real email address. Later when reporting the crime to the FBI, Bob says, but they knew the names of the parties, the amounts of the transactions. How could they? 
I don't know, sissy agent. I just know that it happens every day. We encourage you to treat every email as suspicious, particularly those requesting a wire transfer or change to a wire transfer. How could Bob have prevented this unfortunate event? If he had scrutinized the email more carefully, he might have noticed that the email was not sent using Betty's normal email address. But you know what? The bad actors designed these emails to be difficult to detect. We believe that the best action is picking up the phone and calling Betty using her normal office number to confirm that change. All right, so as you can see there, let me get back. As you can see there, um, you know, that is a prime example of a social, it's called a social engineering wire transfer fraud scenario. Um, you know, unfortunately they give the FBI agent there a bad rep for whatever reason. Um, they do know why, and I'll tell you exactly, you know, how they know all that information. So what happens is, these cyber attackers, they are very, very sophisticated, okay? Um, you know, I wouldn't underestimate what they're able to do. They literally operate very similar to a business. So what they have is they have different departments, literally, and they will attack certain industries. So let's say, for instance, obviously law firms. So they're going to attack a certain amount of law firms in a certain area at any given time. Um, because again, a lot of times I get questions, well, I'm a small firm. I don't have a lot of information. Why would they come after me? Cause you're just part of the pool. It's not you. It's not your law firm specifically. You're just part of the law firm groups that they're going after, right? It's the numbers game. So what happens is they literally have a department of individuals that are known for, you know, gaining access or tricking somebody to click on malware to gain access to your system. So then the next thing that happens is they did their job. They gained access to, you know, 500 out of 10,000 law firms. So now it goes to the next department. The next department is literally reading your emails. They're going through emails. That's where they're collecting data and information with regards to your clients, your names. Um, you know, they, and they'll pretend to be somebody, but what happened, sorry, I jumped ahead. But, so that group is literally learning that information. Then they move it on to the next group who now is the one that is, you know, they're kind of the closer. They're now, they have all that information on your clients. You know, they, name, they know the names of your kids, where you live, uh, if it's through email or any of that information on your system. And they use that to their advantage to pretend to be you. Okay. Or wherever else they're trying to pretend to be, whether they're trying to be a pretend to be a client of yours to pretend to be you, uh, whatever the scenario is. So that one was just one example of scenarios that we see in this regard. So what that person does is again, they have all that information and they use that to their advantage for a scenario like that. So it looks like it, it's coming, uh, real from Betty Crenshaw, right? Um, it's very, very scary. Then they create an email that looks very similar. So you're, if you're not, you know, on top of your game, paying attention to this all the time, you know, it's a very, very scary situation. And, you know, we'll get into it in the next couple of slides, but this type of fraud scenario has increased so much over the past year, year and a half, um, to the point where carriers are now almost afraid to work with firms, especially if they do a lot of wires or high wire amounts um, or have title agencies tied to them, you know, that's how bad this has gotten because the challenge is once the money is typically sent, it's really hard to get back because it went to wire to some bank account and that bank account is gone, right? It gets closed closed right away. Um, you know, so I did meet with, I met an FBI agent one time when I gave this presentation and he informed me that, you know, a good amount of time they're able to, uh, uh, um, collect some of the funds, but not all of them. 
and every scenario is is different than than the other, right? So um, it's just a very very difficult situation to be in. And like I said, I wouldn't underestimate these hackers. Um, you know, there are groups that are very very sophisticated. Then you have the ones that are what we would deem amateurs. You know, um, that they could actually be more disruptive because you know they don't really know what they're doing. And, um, you know, they gain access, delete your information and, you know, it all backfired. And, um, you know, so we've seen situations like that as well. All right. So let's, uh, let's continue here. So what is not covered by cyber insurance? All right. So these are a few things you'll see this on an exclusion in your policy, you know, theft, theft of corporate IP or trade secrets. You know, that's one that they do keep, um, you know, they try to, to exclude brand damage. I have some stars next to that. The, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that one's hard to explain, but basically, I mean, you have the PR coverage that's built in. Um, but what they're doing is, you know, it, it's, it's not, it, it won't completely cover if it's a really bad breach. Right. So that could that could be one where there's certain language around that there's not specific coverage. Again, not all policies are written the same. So there are is coverage sometimes built into policies that will cover that. Also, future revenue. Um, again, if your sales go down due to a breach, you know, you start losing clients because they were they found out that, you know, you lost so and so's client information there. You had a really bad breach that's typically excluded in a cyber policy as well. I have seen ones where they have coverage for that, but I can tell you that is a very difficult, um, it's a difficult one to really figure out with regards to sales being down and they have a very specific formula with regards to it. So, you know, there are guidelines around that, but most of the time it's excluded. And then these last three are definitely excluded, you know, um, nation state attacks. You're, uh, they're not going to improve your IT security measures after a breach, right? They're, they're providing you coverage for the breaches. They're not giving you money and the funds necessary to, to you know, provide security uh, measures going forward. They'll give you some insight into it like I did. They're not going to give you money for it and then physical damage, right? I mean, that's part of your general liability policies. That's not going to be part of this. So let's dive into some claim statistics. It looks, a little, it looks like it came through a little fuzzy, but the point of this slide here is, again, to really give you a demonstration of where the claims are coming from by size, revenue size, okay? So what you can see here is these next few slides, they are through uh, net diligence the 2019 cyber claim study. So they do these every so every so often, um, every few years. So 2019 is the most up to date, right? We're only in the fifth month of 2020. Um, you know, so there is not a study or there's not data driven yet. And you can see it's up to 2018. So even though the study was done in 2019, most of the data I'm going to go through was from the years 2014 to 2018. They do a five-year period of time, which they feel is um, the best years to uh, best amount of years to do it. They also, you know, I know another study that does that on the professional liability claims because um, it's tough to do it just by one year because there could be something that went on in the industry in one year. So it's it's good to look at a few years. So this slide, in essence, is basically you can see nano revenue is what they call it. It's less than 50 million, right? That's going to be most of law firms across the country. So you're falling in to that category. That makes up more than half of where the claims come from in the past five years. Okay, so that really sums up what that looks like and what I mentioned earlier with regards to you know targeting your small firms and small small um, businesses. Again, it's part of being just a part of a large number of, of uh, businesses that are relatively small. So, you know, that, that has a, a play with, within that statistic as well. The next one here, 
again, just want to kind of uh, show this to you because I thought this was important when I was looking, you know, when I went through this net diligence study, um, there's a lot of useful information. It's about 65 pages uh, of PDF to go through, but some things really jumped out to me and this is one of them, right? You can see by year that it's, the claims have increased. Okay. So in 2014, it was 15%. 2015, it was 17%. 2016, it was 19. And then now it stayed steady at 2017 and 2018 at 24, 25%. So, you know, it's, it's, the claims are increasing. That's what this is basically saying. They're increasing every year. Um, you know, not to scare everybody on, on this webinar with regards to it, but again, it's, it's something to really keep in mind. And it's one of those situations, like I said, it's kind of unavoidable because we're not going backwards, right? We're, we're only using technology more and less people are using paper. So let's dive into this as well. Um, again, kind of reiterates my first slide with regards to why law firms. So you can see here, this is percentage of claims by section, okay? Now again, everybody most likely thinks that healthcare was always the biggest one, right? HIPAA rules and all this stuff, and or retail. And for many years, that was the case. But professional services has taken over. If you asked me two years ago when they did the last study that went up to 2017, um, you know, the healthcare portion was larger. It was actually equal to professional services. Now professional services eats up more of the pie with the pie chart here, it's about 26, 27% of the pie chart. Um, and it seems to be growing, unfortunately. So again, kind of puts some, some context into the information I gave you earlier. Here, uh, you know, the most important thing, and this is where I highlighted, there's a lot of different um, types of breaches and a lot of different causes of loss, right? You can see it's a very colorful chart, but the biggest ones, you know, most of them down there at the bottom, they make up about five to 7% of, of this chart. But you can see ransomware, that's still number one. That's been number one for a very long time. It's just the most common loss. It's the most common type of hack breach. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a quick pay for, for a hacker who hits it big, right? Like I said, if they're going after 10,000 law firms in a day or in a week and you know 500 and they get into 500 of them and 200 of them pay the amount that they're requesting it's a nice payday right for sitting behind your computer so that's that's always the number one social engineering we just went through that's specifically to like wire transfers and stuff that video that i showed uh, i can tell you when this study was last done social engineering was not even really a part of this chart they were they fell into all other um, that is how much it has skyrocketed to the point where like i said this is over a five-year period of time it made up um it made up 30 percent of claims in the year 2018 social engineering did alone so again giving you some context into you know what we're seeing in this marketplace you know that that it's a very fearful um tactic that these cyber criminals are using. Um, like I said, social engineering is a little bit more complicated. So you're getting the more complicated cyber criminals to do that against you. Whereas, you know, ransomware is a little bit less complicated on their end. Um, but yeah, so, but the social engineering has high payouts, especially if it's a wire transfer of a couple hundred thousand dollars, which we absolutely see. I mean, we've seen ones where there've been over a million dollars um, so scary, scary situations to be in with that regard. Let's keep going here. So here's a, a positive slide um, with regards to statistics. So this is basically, it's crisis services costs, right? So this is, this is the first party cost that I mentioned to you before. The forensics investigation, your notification costs, credit monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see the costs of each have really decreased over the five-year period of time. Um, and the thought process of it trending downward over the past five years is because 
you know, maybe the move by cyber carriers to include bundled breach response services as a component to their policy are driving down these rates. So what I mean by that is, you know, they have negotiated rates with companies in a bundled package, um, you know, again, with those consulting firms and such that are handling all different components instead of going to, you know, five different types of companies to handle five different types of costs. Um, you know, so we're seeing that driven down, which again is, is pretty nice. So, but again, it does, you know, we've seen these costs really increase. This is just a chart based off of the the statistics they were able to generate. Again, not all claims are reported. Um, not all scenarios are reported and not all of them are reported to the net diligence. Um, and I, I forgot to mention this, but the net diligence, this study is built from um, about 10 to 15 carriers across the country that generate all these, these uh, statistics. So that's where they're getting this from. So it's the carriers that are reporting these. So again, if a, if a carrier, excuse me, if a law firm is not reporting or a business is not reporting a breach, it's not going to fall on this. Okay. Pretty self-explanatory. So here are some, just run through this quickly, some demands and drivers for cyber insurance over the last few years, which is, you know, we've seen an uptick on our end with regards to the calls that we received. So, you know, demand for cyber insurance. Uh, most insurance carriers have reported experiencing an increase in demand, you know, self-explanatory. Need for additional capacity. So some law firms that we work with, and you might be in this situation, you have high value or net, net, net worth clients, right? If you're handling estate work or real estate transactions that are in the multi-millions of dollars, you may need the additional capacity. The policy terms and conditions, they are broadening. Um, I'll talk about the market in a couple slides, but that's a good thing, but then it's also kind of a complicated thing. The sublimited coverages are being offered within policies. Again, I'll kind of give you an example on a couple slides, but the social engineering is a great example of that. And then you have drivers for cyber insurance. So your notification laws, which I'll touch on next slide, you know, that is mandated by the state that if something happens, you need to now notify clients. News of cyber related events, right? It's in the news all the time. You see cyber breaches happening all the time. I mean, when I, uh, when, when COVID-19 appeared and we were going into basically, you know, lockdown as a country, um, you know, that was, I was reading articles and being sent articles all the time about hackers taking advantage or cyber criminals taking advantage of the situation, people being on their Wi-Fi, not protected, um, you know, having staff, uh, you know, uh, now vulnerable with, you know, on their Wi-Fi, it's not on the same company's network, et cetera, et cetera. So just a lot of questions and a lot of, of claim, or excuse me, not even claims, but just scenarios that we've seen in that. The increase in education, right? You're on this webinar for a reason. There's a lot of education out there. There's a lot of information that's out there. And then also we're also seeing an experience in cyber related loss. You know, I've had multiple clients that had cyber coverage or did not both didn't have cyber coverage that had a cyber related loss. Um, it's a very scary and tough scenario to go through. It's not just monetary, but it's also just the fact of going through a process, spending the time, all, all the above with regards to a, a cyber uh, breach and then contractual obligations. You know, sometimes you may be working with a client who says now, if it's a bank, especially they may say you, uh, you know, in order to be a client, in order for us to be a client of yours, we're mandating that you require three or $5 million of cyber coverage. Um, that's to protect themselves and it's forcing you to protect yourself as well. But I've been seeing a large in increase with regards to that as well from clients specifically. So in the state of Massachusetts, you have a data breach notification law, and I'm just gonna read through this. So it requires businesses and others um, that basically, you know, that own or, or have personal identifiable information of clients that are in the state um, to make notification 
if there is a known breach of security. Okay, so what does that mean? And this, they, they literally define what that looks like. So that personal identifiable information to them is as follows. It's a resident's first name and last name or first initial and last name in combination with any one of the following below. Okay, so that's a lot to kind of take in, but basically it's some type of combination of the person's name or initial of the name and one of these items below. It doesn't have to be all three, it just has to be one of them in combination with the names. Social security number, driver's license number, or you know, if it's a state issued ID card, and then find financial account number or credit card number um, you know, that they've gained access to. So they, they are very specific with regards to that. I can tell you other states, and that's what makes this complicated. Every state seems to have a different mandate and requirement around language with regards to notifying clients of breaches. Um, you know, there's no one comprehensive requirement package across the United States. So, you know, you have your counterparts like New York, um, they have what's known as the New York Shield Act. That gets into a little bit more granular detail on top of what you have written here. They get a little bit more specific. So it's, it's more um, strict than this language. Obviously, you have the CCPA out in California. That was the first one that was initiated. You know, so every state is now putting out these different um, policy, these different requirements and language with regards to clients' information, uh, personal identifiable information, because before it was very loose. So that is yours as a state specifically. And then let me talk about the cyber insurance market today. So in my opinion, it's completely disjointed. Uh, you know, coverage is splintered. What I mean by that is there's a lot of carriers trying to write cyber insurance. So you may be thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? That's driving down the pricing, there's competition, and that's all true. But the problem is 90% of those carriers are gonna pull out of the, the cyber market within the next couple of years because they're not gonna, they didn't appropriately do the underwriting and expect the losses that they've expected. And I can tell you right now, I've already been seeing it. There's been carriers that have been taking major rate over just the past couple of years for cyber. So somebody who thought they had a very cheap cyber policy, well, you did. And what happens now is they didn't underwrite appropriately. So now you're paying double what you did when you probably first purchased it. So as the saying goes, you know, cheaper is definitely not always better, especially in the insurance world. You want to be with a stable carrier who knows the underwriting behind it. They know the claim statistics that I just gave you, and you're not going to see rate increases dramatically over years and years. And you can see here, cyber insurance premiums have grown year over year. Um, the good thing is the coverage does ex is expanding and um, you know the limits are expanding. However, there's a component to that that's true, but then there's also a component that's not true to that. And what I mean by that is when I mentioned the social engineering wire fraud video that I showed you before I was able to get a lot more higher coverage amounts with regards to that. Now, since those claims have skyrocketed over the past year, uh, carriers are less inclined to provide higher limits of that particular sublimit. Like I mentioned, pricing continues to trend upwards. Some classes of business are riskier than others. Like I mentioned, real estate firms that are handling title work specifically, you know, they're on the, the red scale for Carriers, unfortunately, you know, sorry for anyone who's, who does both of that, um, but that's just the nature of the beast. And then stronger data is being gathered. So like I mentioned, when they started doing those studies a couple years ago, they didn't have the data like they do now and it'll just continue to grow. So I have about a minute, barely, not even. Um, let me just talk about what the coverage looks like specifically. So myself, what we would do is, you know, we'd go over a call, the application process. Typically, what I see is about a million in coverage with a $5,000 deductible, typically about $1,000 for uh, the year in premium. That's typically the going rate that I see. I work with different carriers. We do have a proprietary cyber insurance carrier that provides coverage. 
So, you know, we really dove into this full steam ahead years ago with regards to this. This is what some of the coverages would look like on a policy. There's a lot to this, um, but basically there's sublimits, there's specific limits, there's first party, there's third party, which you can see here. Um, you know, cybercrime, if you look at the bottom of the page, that would be your social engineering wire fraud, right? So even though this policy is a million dollars, this cybercrime is capped at 100,000, right? So it's a tenth of that, you know, so there's, there's um, some things to really look at in a cyber policy. This is what the application would look like. They're very simple right now, uh, fortunately for, for businesses and law firms out there. So that's the good thing. And, you know, again, we can go through this if anybody has questions. Uh, I wanna at least provide my contact information for the next 10 seconds. So you can write it down or, you know, you can uh, reach out directly to the BBA, whether that's Daniel or Tara um, for my contact information. If you would like to, you know, have these slides or have specific questions with regards to everything that I just went through. I know it's a lot of information. I might be talking fast in this webinar to try, you know, I was trying to cap, keep this to the, uh, the hour, but nonetheless, I wanna thank everybody for spending their Monday afternoon, one o'clock with me. Hopefully this was valuable for you all. And like I said, please reach out with any questions. Other than that, have a nice uh, day and a nice rest of the week.